I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to Romans chapter 3. This is where we'll start today. This morning, as you know, we're going to begin our walk through the letter T of the well-known acronym TULIP as we study the doctrines of grace. We learned last week that TULIP is an acrostic for the five points of what is commonly referred to as Calvinism, or as we also know them, the doctrines of grace. Each letter of TULIP, the T-U-L-I-P, in case you were wondering how it's spelled, each letter of TULIP represents one of the other points, one of the doctrines of grace. Before we begin today, I do want to say a couple of things by way of introduction that will serve as reminders and hopefully encouragement. First of all, when we say doctrines of grace, we're meaning that we're going to look at what the scriptures say about grace. Doctrine is just a word for teachings, the teachings of grace. What does the Bible teach us about grace? Now, Grace is not a new term to anybody or anybody who's ever been inside of a church or even has a friend who goes to church probably because it's on plenty of coffee mugs, t-shirts, bumper stickers, and plenty of so-called popular worship songs. But how often have we really stopped to consider what is God's grace? What is it? How does it work? How does God dispense His grace? What are the ways that He shows us His grace? And why do we even need His grace? And so, that's what this, the purpose of this study is, is for us to consider the, the height and the breadth and the depth of the grace that God shows sinners through Christ. Second, as we go through this series, we're not going to just walk through a one particular passage in each sermon. We do expository preaching here, uh, but there are multiple ways to do that. You can spend time just looking at what all of the scriptures say about a particular theme or subject, and in that way draw out the meaning of scripture as it pertains to a particular theme or subject. And in our case, what does the Bible say about grace? And so as we start today, we're going to be looking at, it's, I'll warn you, it's not going to feel like we're talking about grace today. It's going to feel quite the opposite. Why? Because we must understand man's desperate need of grace. It's not just a little bit. It's not just that it would be nice if we would have it. Or our lives will be, you know, maybe 50% better if we were to get a little bit of God's grace. We are desperate, poor, blind beggars for God's grace. And that's what the T does, is it helps us, as we look at total depravity, it helps us to see our need for God to show us grace and for Him to do it in a sovereign way, because we would never come for His grace on our own. So we're going to look at a lot of different texts today, and I will forewarn you, it, it might feel like a bit of a scripture dump at times. I'm going to try not to do that, but do keep your Bible handy. 
flip around with us. Take plenty of notes so you can study these cross-references on your own. Because listen, I don't want you to be compelled to believe this because of me. I want you to be compelled to believe this because you find it in the text. Because this is the plain teaching of Scripture. That's what we want to do. I could be an expository preacher and still lie to you. So we don't want to put our faith in men. We want to put our faith in Scripture. So, as we look at this T for total depravity, there, there might be times when you're tempted to think that today that we are exaggerating the condition of man. That there might be times in the sermon where you, where you might think, well, that's not me. I know people like who he's talking about, but that's not me. Surely I'm not that bad. Surely there was something in me that was redeemable. Surely there was something in me that Christ saw and was drawn to, or that he saw and found, you know, this one can really do a lot for me. I would like to say to you, friends, whenever that rises up within you, if it does, that is your depravity talking. What do I mean? Well, the very nature, the very sinfulness of our sin, the wickedness of our wickedness is that it deceives us. And we deceive ourselves. And we want to hide from ourselves the poor condition of our soul because we don't want to believe it. We want to believe that, no, down deep down, I'm actually I'm pretty good. I've done a lot of good things in my life. I know I don't have it all together, but I'm not that bad. I want to challenge you, though, to look at the texts with me today and simply ask, I might not like it, but is it true? And by the help of the Spirit, may we see what the Scriptures say about us as a people, as humanity, as the human race, and then also individually and personally, that we individually and personally would own this. Let us be like John the Baptist this morning when he said that he must increase. I must decrease. Paul Washer said it well. He said, quote, We rob men of a greater vision of God because we will not give them a lower vision of themselves. End quote. I happen to agree with that statement, and it's the reason why we're going through this study in the first place. Though the popular way of considering salvation today is that you're awesome, Jesus is going to make you awesomer, here's a t-shirt, the reality of the gospel message is that we desperately need God to save us. If he doesn't, we have no hope. The reality is that Satan reveals his hatred for you by convincing you that deep down, you're a good person. This keeps you from running to the cross for mercy because you don't see your need for it. But God reveals his love for you in showing you that you are desperately sinful so that you will run to him for mercy. With that in mind, would you stand with me as we read Romans chapter 3? 
verses 9 through 18. This is the word of the living God. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to be here today and to look at your scriptures and to see what it is that you say about us. Help us to not stand here pridefully before you, denying our radical need for you, but instead to gladly own it because that means that we're making plenty of room for the grace of God to shower upon us. Please, Lord, help us to see the depths of our depravity so that we can leave with a greater appreciation for the grace that you have freely bestowed upon us in Christ. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So the T, as we said last week, stands for total depravity. But we said also last week that the intention is not to imply that each individual person is as wicked or as sinful as absolutely possible. Meaning that there are sins that you could commit, but you don't. So it's not meaning that everyone does all of the sin that is ever in their heart. No, the intention is to communicate that man is so radically affected by sin that he is totally unable and unwilling to come to God on his own because of his depravity. And that's why we often refer to it as total inability. It is referring to loving sin so much and sin being so ingrained into our nature that it makes us incapable of coming to God because we are unwilling to come to God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, quote, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto, end quote. In other words, because of the fall, we are now in a state of sin, and thus we are unable to do anything in our own power to come to God to be saved. But it's not just that. We're also not able to do anything on our own power to make ourselves savable. 
So man's condition is one of utter lostness, one of total and comprehensive ruin. Or to use the biblical terminology, we are dead in sin. So as we consider total depravity, it's going to be very important for us to understand what do, we mean, what do we mean by sin? What is sin? What is evil? What is wickedness? Where does it come from? In answering this question, I'm, I'm reminded of the late R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite theologians. In, in speaking at a conference, he was given the question, what is evil as the subject for his talk? And I'm paraphrasing him a bit here, but he gets up and with a typical R.C. grin on his face and says, well, in presidential fashion, it depends what your meaning of is is. What is evil? Well, it depends what you mean by is. That sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? People laughed, but he wasn't joking. What, What Sproul was getting at is that sin and evil, or evil particularly, is not that evil isn't, that it doesn't exist. It's not a force. It's not a substance. Now, I know that that might be difficult to wrap your mind around, and we're not saying that there's no such thing as evil, but what we're saying is that it's not a force. It's not a substance. It's not made of material matter. Now, I want to address this because sometimes we get our theology without even realizing it from movies and from shows. And on the movies, evil is often depicted as this wispy, smoky thing. This ethereal, black stuff that just kind of comes into your nose and it makes you evil. And then maybe your eyes turn a different color and that's to signify that now you're evil. Well, that's not the biblical description of what evil is. Evil, sin, is simply the absence or the negation of righteousness. It is not holiness. It is not goodness as defined by Scripture. It is not perfection. I know, again, that that is a bit philosophical, but we need to grasp that because we need to be very careful that we define evil and sin the way that the book defines it. We're doing this today because often you and I, whether we mean to or not, we come up with our own idea of what sin, evil, and wickedness are. We think that it's this. We think that it's the people in jail right now. That is sin. That is evil. Or if I accidentally slip up and cuss someone out, I don't know how you slip up like that, but if I accidentally say a bad word, that was me sinning. But I wanted to read this passage from Romans chapter 3 because it's very interesting what Paul does. Here he is explaining the fallen, ruined state of man. And even though he's an apostle, even though he is an inspired writer of Scripture, Paul doesn't just write out his own definition. What does Paul do? Look at the page with me. If you notice, verses basically half of 10 through 18, are probably in the center of your page. And that is to indicate to you that Paul is quoting Scripture. Wrap your mind around that. Paul, an 
inspired writer of Scripture, an apostle who is writing with authority, even Paul, when he turns to explain the fallen nature of man and the condition of our sin, he quotes Scripture. I believe that's an example for you and I as well. That when we think about what evil is, when we think about what sin is, we turn here. What does God say in it? Okay, so turn to Genesis chapter 3. We know that the first sin ever committed by humans was committed by the first humans. Now this is not new to you. You've no, it's not that you've never read this passage in your life. I, I know that this isn't going to be exactly groundbreaking, but we need to lay a really good foundation. It's Genesis chapter 3. Well, I am in the preface, so that's not our text. Genesis chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But then the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is an important verse. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I want you to notice that the serpent is the craftiest creature out of all the beasts. Being crafty, he knows to subvert God's order. Creation was designed with man as supposed to have dominion over creation, over the animals. You find that in as you read through the creation account, man was supposed to have dominion over the creatures. And here is the creature now speaking to the humans who were supposed to have dominion over them. But not only that, he also subverts God's order of authority between man and woman. He subverts God's order there by coming to Eve. I would submit to you that where Eve messes up is not just in taking the fruit, but it's there in verse 6 that she saw. She delighted in it. Her eyes were delighting in it. She was desiring this, knowing that God said, you cannot touch this. Eve did all of the heavy lifting here. Do you realize that? The serpent didn't come and say, hey, you better go eat that. You need to go do this right now or else I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something really bad to you. The serpent just asks a question. Did God really say that? Isn't that how sin always acts in our heart? But did God really say? Did God really say that we can't do this? Did God really say that we need to love him with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength? I mean, who can even do that? Did God really say that? 
what was happening here is that Eve, out of her own volition, saw something that she wanted. They were given all of the garden. Do you realize this? They had it made. Everything was good for them. They were perfect human beings, even having a relationship with God. And there was one thing that they couldn't have, and that one thing is what they wanted. My friends, that is our sinfulness. God says, have all of creation. I've created all of this. It's yours. Enjoy it. Go be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy your life. And they said, well, that tree, though, why can't we have that one? I want that one. And this is sin. James 4.17 tells us that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. It's a very simple definition of sin. Knowing the right thing to do, not doing it. Eve knew the right thing to do. She didn't do it. She was sinning. Then she also turned to Adam, who was standing passively by her. And she gave him some of the fruit without even any deliberation. Adam just says, sure, that looks great. Let me have some of that. Both Adam and Eve sinned freely. They were not compelled The serpent, being crafty, knew how to play this conversation. They rebelled against God's command and His design. And you know very well that ever since then, sin entered into the world. Where does sin come from? In a human sense, it comes from the fall. It started there with the very first human beings. Now, they were a depiction, a symbol, in hindsight now, of what all human beings would have done. It's easy for us to look back at that and say, man, why would you do that? That's so silly. And then we turn and we go and commit sins of our own, don't we? Sin is simply doing the opposite of what God said to do, or what God said not to do. It's doing what God said not to do and not doing what God said to do. And since then, all human beings have been born with a sinful nature. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? Adam. Death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all Sinned. Why? Because Adam was just a type of what all of us do and what all of us would do in that situation. Think about that. Perfect. Everything was absolutely perfect. They were given everything and they still fell. Oftentimes, you and I think, well, if life wasn't so hard, or if I just had this, or if I just that, if I just this, I wouldn't have these problems with my sin. That's a lie. That's an absolute lie. Because it's already been proven in Adam and Eve that they had absolutely everything. And even they fell. Even they rebelled against God. All that God had given them still was not enough. It's important for us to grasp here that this is so heinous of a sin Even though, from the outside looking in, in a human sense, you and I might think, well, come on, man, that was a piece of fruit. Or maybe that's why I don't eat fruit, because the last time someone ate fruit, bad things happened. It's easy for us 
to think that. Is it really that big of a deal? They ate a piece of fruit. But yes, yes it was. Because God, the creator, the one who dispensed unthought of kindness upon his creation, who had only been good towards his creation, but most importantly, who is the ruler of his creation, decided that these are the rules that you need to play with within. These are the things that you need to do. Here are the parameters. Here are the guidelines. Here are the boundaries within which you can live creation but the creation said no I don't think I will that's a really big deal also because God is holy and he is perfect and he is righteous and this holy and righteous God set forth this command under the threat of death for disobedience you read it with me didn't you if you eat that one you will die The serpent did not threat Adam and Eve, yet they followed that sinful desire. God did threaten Adam and Eve, and they still ignored him. Therein, my friends, is the sinfulness of sin. By chapter 6 of Genesis, the situation is so bad that in verse 5 it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, listen, only evil continually. You know what comes next. God destroys the overwhelming majority of his creation with water and judgment for their sin. All of creation, save eight people and the animals on the ark, everything was so tainted and so ruined by sin that God said, we're starting over. Sin deserved death. That's a wide-scale death, isn't it? Then in Leviticus 10, we find Nadab and Abihu. These men are priests before the Lord, and they were given very specific instructions of how they were supposed to uh, um, operate within their chiefly duties. And they decide one day that they were going to offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, in a manner that was contrary to what the Lord had commanded. And you know what happens? For offering unauthorized fire, my friends, fire comes forth from the Lord, destroys them. Instantly, they were dead. What about Uzzah, 2 Samuel 6? The Israelites knew they couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. But one day, as they are taking the Ark of the Covenant... The oxen that was transporting the ark stumbles a bit. So Uzzah, being a good guy, wanting to save the ark of the covenant from falling onto the ground and getting dirty. I mean, this is a good thing to want to do. He sticks out his hand to stop the ark from falling to the ground. Instantly, God killed him. Folks, dead. Why? Because he disobeyed the Lord's commands. For touching the ark? He was saving it from falling. Yes, because God is holy. As some theologians have said in the past, Uzzah's mistake was that he thought that his hand was more pure than the mud or dirt on the ground. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, they were coming to the apostles to give them the proceeds of the sale of the property. They hid the right amount, the exact amount of how much they had gotten for the sale and instead claimed to have gotten a smaller number. And guess what happens? God strikes them both down. I wanted to bring that one up in case you're tempted to think, well, that was the Old Testament 
This is the New Testament. We're in the new time. God's not mean like that anymore. At the birth of the church, in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira both struck dead. And you know what the text says? Everyone feared. I say all of this to say that we can see the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God in that even in these seemingly small, in a human sense, even these seemingly small sins, the punishment was death. It wasn't a slap on the wrist. It wasn't, you better do better next time or I'm going to get you. It was death. Man, even knowing that his sin deserves death, does it anyway. That's how sinful we are. Romans 1.32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Boy, is that not our sinful nature? This shows us the sinfulness of man. But God, even for what we sinful humans might consider to be the smaller sins, though we know that there are no such thing as small sins, God is giving the death penalty for anything that falls short of absolute perfection. Now we're wanting to look now at sin in our lives. That's sin on a grander scale, teaching us about the sinfulness of sin, where sin comes from. But now let's look at our sinful actions. Sin is seen in a variety of ways, and we could definitely spend a lot of good and useful time studying all the implications of sin, but I want to focus mainly on our actions and our nature. Man demonstrates his sinfulness by acting sinfully. We do things that are forbidden. We've already established that sin is anything less than perfection. It's doing the opposite of what God commands. So what are some of the specific things that we do that are sinful? Several times throughout the New Testament, you'll find these lists of specific sins. And one of the times that you find is in Galatians chapter 5. Right before talking about the fruits of the Spirit, he talks about the fruit of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then he says, and things like these. Now here's the warning. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yet what do we do? These things. Listen to what's in the list. Next to sorcery, practicing witchcraft, jealousy. Think about that. Do you and I ever think about putting that in that category? When we find jealousy in our hearts, do we ever think about I am being sinful, just like someone who practices witchcraft. We like to look at the drunk and say, yeah, you know what, that person, that is a sinner. But you know what else is here? Envy. You know what envy is? Lustfully craving what somebody else has. Ladies, looking at, on Instagram, seeing the latest fashion trends, 
desperately wanting them. You know what you were doing? You were being envious in your heart. Men, there are a lot of ways that we do that, looking at the grass being greener on the other side, a nicer car, a bigger home. We look and we envy. I wish I had that. Here, that's put right next to drunkenness and idolatry and orgies. That's how sinful our sin is. And we know that this is not an exhaustive list of all the ways that we sin, but it's definitely a good start. All of mankind, even the so-called heroes of the faith, are sinners. As it has been said many times in the past, the best of men are men at best. Sin is so absolutely filling every part of our being that we sin with even our extremities. We sin with our hands. Man engages in activity that is sinful and deserving of death. With our hands, we wage war. With our hands, we strike. With our hands, we type in internet addresses that we should not be visiting. With our hands, we grab the bottle for another drink. But we also sin with our hands and the things that we don't do. So even those who don't engage in the criminal activity or, or do drugs, they sin with their hands by not doing the good things that they should do. Psalm 134 says to lift up our hands and bless the Lord. Man in his fallen state does not want to lift up his hands and bless the Lord. 1 Timothy 2.8 says that men should lift holy hands in prayer. But man in his fallen state does not want to lift up his hands in prayer, nor does he have holy hands. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.30? If your hand causes you to sin, what are you to do with it? Cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, we sin with our feet. Romans 3.15, their feet are swift to shed blood. We just read that a bit ago. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. How are you sinning with your feet whenever you're walking with the counsel of the wicked? When you're taking counsel from people who are not in Christ, who are not speaking to you in biblical wisdom. Proverbs 4.26, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. We sin with our eyes, don't we? Psalm 101.3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. How are you sinning whenever you set before your eyes anything that's worthless? What does that mean? Pay attention to what you watch. Pay attention to the things that you see. Man in his fallenness loves to watch other people sin in a movie or on TV. Matthew 5.28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I say to you that everyone who looks, women, that would go for you too, looking at a man with lust in your heart, looking, you hear the old saying, well, we can look, we just can't touch. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying to you, looking is a sin with lust in your heart. Proverbs 21.4 tells us that we can have haughty eyes. How do we have haughty eyes? By looking down on other people. We sin with our mouths. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, 
Today, we have a lot of Christians who think it's fun and okay to cuss and have a vulgar vocabulary. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. James 3.9, with our mouth we bless our Lord and the Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Proverbs 26.24, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his house. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. What is that talking about? Flattery. Whenever you flatter people, that is acting sinfully. Jude, verse 16, grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loud mouth boasters. Boasting? Grumbling? Anybody have an issue with grumbling? Complaining? Oh, how long are we going to be here? Oh, how long is this? Oh, how long is that? Oh, we never get to do this. We never get... My friends, that's grumbling, and that is evidence of a sinful heart. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Lying. Anyone in here ever lied? Yes, of course we have. We sin in our thoughts. Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. How are you sinning in your thoughts there? By being anxious. You know what anxiety is? It's not trusting God for the future. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When we don't think about good things, and we think about how much we would love to really tell that person off, or we think about how much we would love to do this or do that that we know we shouldn't do, even though we might not ever act on it, Scripture tells us that this is sinning in the mind. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your what? Of your mind. What does that mean? That your mind is broken your brain is broken by sin and you need to be renewed. How about the most condemning one of all? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? With all your mind. Do you know when you don't love the Lord your God with all your mind, you're sinning. This is sinful because it's a command that we must love Him this way. And of course, we sin in our hearts. The same verse. That we should love the Lord our God with all our heart. Now, we could go on and on and on and on and on. But let's ask, why do we do these things? If we know that sin deserves death, if, if we know that behaving in this way deserves that we die, and yet we continue to sin in every conceivable way with all of our faculties, why do we do it? You ever wondered that? We sin because we're sinners. This is our sinful nature. Man acts sinfully because of his sinfulness. He does that which is forbidden because it is, it is his nature to do so. A cow, it eats grass because it is a cow. And it's its nature to do so. A fish swims in water 
because it's its nature to do so. But we would never say that if you see a different animal eating grass, that every animal that eats grass is a cow. I hope you wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say that anybody who swims is a fish. I don't think we would, at least. But that's the nature of those animals. They do those things because it's their nature. And when we sin, we do it because it's who we are. This is the most damning aspect of our sin. It's not just the outward action. It is the inward disposition. I want you to turn to Matthew 15 with me. Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to set this up as you turn there. Jesus is explaining to the people what truly defiles a person. The Pharisees, they were offended that Jesus' disciples were breaking the tradition of the elders. And what was the tradition that they were breaking? They were not washing their hands before they were eating. Now why is this important? Because the Pharisees saw the law, the commands for the priests that they were supposed to be ceremonially washing themselves before they engaged in any of their priestly duties. And so the Pharisees, wanting to set their own standard of righteousness, applied that to everybody. Everybody needs to do this. They need to be ceremonially pure. And here are the disciples of Christ Jesus, and they're not doing it. So the Pharisees are very upset by this. And that's what's going on. Jesus is explaining now why they don't do it. Verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Let's start at verse 17, sorry. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the what? And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come, listen to this, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. What is Jesus telling us here? Jesus says that from the heart flow wickedness. When he uses the word heart here, he's referring to the innermost core of who you are. I know some of you have a a well out on your property. If you put a colored dye in that well, is that water, no matter what faucet you pour it out of, that water is going to be stained by that color dye. Why? Because it's in the well. It's at the source. The source is tainted. You've seen many times that we have boil notices. Why? Because the source where the water is coming from is possibly tainted. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not the things that you do out here. It's not just that you yelled at somebody. It's not just that you cussed at a person. Even when a man or a woman commits adultery with another man or woman, that's not where the sin began. Jesus is saying, it's because of what's in your heart. This is where the sin is. This is where it's coming from. We love to blame Satan for every time that we are tempted to do something evil. But it's not even always or even necessarily satanic or demonic influence. What does James tell us? James 1, but each person 
is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The sin is here. It's already here. That's why you do it. Your nature wants to sin. Your nature looks for an opportunity to sin, to rebel against God. There are some people that believe that man is basically good. There are other people who believe that man is good, but he's weak and he needs a little bit of help to be better. But what do the scriptures teach? That man is thoroughly evil in and of himself, in his heart, in such a way that when he is sinning, he's doing what his heart most wants to do. Our condition is so bad that Proverbs 28.9 tells us that our prayers are an abomination to God. Can you imagine that? A person who is not saved, who is not in Christ, and they're there praying before the Lord as though nothing is wrong. The scriptures tell us that prayer is an abomination. Do you understand? Our condition is so bad that even when we try to do good things, even those good actions are tainted and ruined by sin. Isaiah 64, we've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Think about that. When you're not in Christ, even on your best day, you're no better than a ruined, dirty rag. You ever tried to clean a window with a dirty rag? How much good did that do you? Probably made it worse, didn't it? And that's exactly how we are when we try to do righteous things in our sinful nature is we're just smearing more of our filth everywhere. The human heart is so sinful, so utterly devastated by sin that Paul writes of us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we're children of wrath, we're separated from Christ, we're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, we're strangers to the covenants of promise, and that we are without hope and without God in the world. Ultimately, the human heart rebels against God, listen, because it hates God. Romans 1.30 tells us in our fallen state that we are haters of God. Well, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? That's, I mean, come on, I hate God, really? Tell me, what did Jesus do to deserve to be murdered? You want to have the prime example? Think of the crucifixion. Jesus did nothing. He helped. He loved. He cared for. But they hated him so much, they killed him. They screamed in bloodthirsty fashion, crucify him. The masses, folks, the masses did. That is the human heart, if any of us were there. Apart from the grace of God restraining our evil, you and I would have been shouting too. We would have been saying the same thing. That is why we say that man is totally incapable of coming to God on his own. This is true because he does not want to come to God. Romans 8 is very clear. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's a duality here. There are two different types of people, those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. And then those who are in the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh, and to do that is death. The mind that is set on the flesh, listen, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what does all of this mean? Let's bring this to a point. It means that apart from God doing a miraculous work in the human heart, man will never come to God. He won't. You won't do it. Man acts sinfully because he wants to do it. He doesn't come to God because he doesn't want to come to God. He doesn't love God because he hates God. He doesn't obey God because he hates God. And he loves his sin. This is so deeply ingrained in the human heart that it makes a person completely unable to come to God. Why, Romans 8? Because the mind is set on the things of the flesh. Why do people hear the gospel, yet they don't perceive their great need for salvation? Because their minds are set on the flesh. Why doesn't everyone see Jesus as lovely and worthy of their affections? Because their minds are set on the flesh in hostility towards God. And that mind does not submit to what God says because it cannot. How about some practical implications here? That nice old lady down the street from you, who had never heard a fly, who isn't a believer, that's the condition of her heart. Your children, our children, that we love and adore so much, do you know why they disobey? Because of their sinful nature. Do you know why it's important to bring them up in the way of the Lord? Because of their sinful nature. We disobey because we want to. We noticed you don't have to teach a child to disobey, do you? I bet every parent would testify to that reality. The family members that you share the gospel with to no avail, they have a God-hating heart that will not come to God because it cannot. False religions that preach a false gospel like Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Islam, and so on. These can never save because these are only focused on outward transformation. They just want to get you to do good things, do good deeds, be a good person, follow a list of rules, and then you can cover up for your sinfulness. But they never deal with the issue of the heart. You can live a wonderful life. Be giving. On the outside, look like a, just a saint. And die with a God-hating heart. Jesus said that the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they're beautiful and clean, but inside, they're full of dead men's bones. That's exactly what you and I are. We're walking whitewashed tombs. 
We might look nice. We might dress up the outside, go to church, give to the church, be nice, do good deeds. But if we don't have the Spirit of God working within us, we are nothing more than walking tombs. Now, do you see why Paul wrote in Romans 3 that no one does good? That no one seeks for God? Why Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is wicked and deceitful? We have all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, think about that. Linger there for a moment. Think of all that scripture has had to say about how thoroughly evil and wicked you are personally and me too and yet even while we were in that state of hostility and hatred towards God even then God the Father gave his son in love to save you to rescue you he didn't wait until you got your life in order you know why because you never would you never can. Instead, He did it for us. He didn't wait for you to start going to church, to start loving Him, to start obeying Him. He died while we were in complete rebellion against God. Do you understand how great God's love is for you? So while you hated Him with a deep, profound hatred, His love overcame your rebellion. His love overcomes hatred. Though your heart is wicked and deceitful and you have a heart of stone that has been hardened by your own personal sinfulness, He comes and gives you a new heart. You see, Christianity is not like the other false religions I mentioned where we just want to get you to start living right. Christianity is a religion where you get a new heart. He rids you of your old God-hating heart and gives you a new God-loving heart that longs to obey Him, a new heart that wants to follow in His steps. You and I know that this doesn't mean that you're now sinless, but it does mean that you will sin less. And why? Because you have a new heart. You don't have that old heart of stone anymore. Your old one just wanted sin, but your new one says, stop it. We don't do that anymore. Trust God. Turn to Christ. Believe in Him. Put your mind in the Scriptures. Get on your knees in prayer. The Christian now lives the rest of their lives at war, not with God, but with the sin that they find within themselves. But that sign of war, my friends, is a sign of spiritual life where once there was deadness. Let's stand.
knowing the depth of his depravity. Paul proclaims in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of sinners. And I pray that that would be all of our prayer, all of our confession and profession, not so that we can try to make ourselves feel bad, but so that all glory goes to God for his salvation. John Newton said, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and stand in awe of it. Though we are so riddled with sin and so ruined by it and so enslaved by our desires that even then you overcame all of our rebellion to save us because of your love towards us in Christ. I pray that those who don't know this love, that you would open their eyes to see it, that you would overcome their rebellion so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.